So in other words, uh, you, you, you may be bored, see? And you're feeling sort of empty and at a loose end, and you think, well, um, I don't know, let's go and commit adultery. It might liven things up, see? <laughs> Uh, and, and that would be uh, what they call in Zen, raising waves when no wind is blowing. <laughs> it would be quite a different matter if uh, in a perfectly spontaneous and natural way uh, you uh, fell in love with some woman. Uh, you, you wouldn't be going out of your way to get into trouble. It would be appropriate and natural at the time. Or in the same way, a lot of people, uh, instead of saying, let's commit adultery, when they feel sort of bored, they say, let's go and eat something. And so they become fatter and fatter and fatter because they're filling the spiritual vacuum in their psyche with food, which doesn't do the job. It's not the function of food to fill spiritual vacuums. So uh, in, in this way, one exploits the appetites or the passions. So likewise, also, the, the fifth precept, Sura Meriya Majapamadatana, uh, is the list of intoxicating substances. And uh, it doesn't say that you are not going to take them. It says you're not going to be intoxicated by them. In other words, a Buddhist may drink but not get drunk. Uh, I don't know how that applies to psychedelics, but that's another story. So, one might say then that we are confused through and through about what we mean by the material world and what I'm first of all doing is I'm just giving a number of illustrations which show how confused we are. And let me repeat this to get it clear because it is rather complicated. In the first place, we confuse uh, abstract symbols, that is to say, numbers and words and formulae, with physical events, as we confuse money with consumable wealth. In the second place, we confuse physical events, the whole class and category of physical events, with matter. But matter, you see, is an idea, it's a concept. It's the concept of stuff, of something solid and permanent that you can catch hold of. Now, you just can't catch hold of the physical world. The physical world is the uh, most evasive, elusive uh, process that there is. It will not be pinned down. And therefore, it fulfills all the requirements of spirit. So what I'm saying then is that the, 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 the non-abstract world, which Kozhybsky called unspeakable, which was really a rather good word, um, <laughs> is the spiritual world. And the spiritual world isn't something kind of gaseous, abstract, formless, in that sense of shapeless. It's formless in another sense. The formless world is the wiggly world. There really is no way that the physical world is 
In other words, the, the nature of truth, I said in the beginning, somebody had said that thoughts were made to conceal truth. This is, this is the fact, because there is no such thing as the truth that can be stated. In other words, ask the question, what is the true position of the stars in the Big Dipper? Well, it depends where you're looking at them from. And there is no absolute position. So, in the same way, uh, accountants, a good accountant will tell you that any balance sheet is simply a matter of opinion. Uh, there's no such thing as the true state of affairs of a, of a business. But we're all hooked on the idea that there is, you see, an external objective world, which is a certain way. And that there, it really is that way. History, for example, is a matter of opinion. Uh, history is an art, not a science. It's something constructed, which is accepted as a more or less satisfactory explanation of events, which, as a matter of fact, don't have an explanation at all. Most of what happens in history is completely irrational. But people always have to feel that they've got to find a meaning. For example, you get sick, and uh, you've lived a very good life, and uh, you've been helpful to other people and done all sorts of nice things. And you get cancer. And you say to the clergyman, why did this have to happen to me? And you're looking for an explanation, and there isn't one. It just happened that way. But people feel if they can't find an explanation, they feel very, very insecure. Why? Because they haven't been able to straighten things out. The world is not that way. So the truth, in other words, what is going on, is of course a lot of wiggles. But uh, the way it is, is always in relation to the way you are. In other words, however hard I hit a skinless drum, it will make no noise. Because noise is a relationship between a fist and a skin. So in exactly the same way, light is a relationship between electrical energy and eyeballs. It is you, in other words, who evoke the world, and you evoke the world in accordance with what kind of a you you are. What kind of an organism? One organism evokes one world, another organism evokes another world. And so everything, reality, is, is, is a kind of relationship. So once one gets rid of the idea of the truth as some way the world is in a fixed sense, say, it is that way, see? Then you get to another idea of the truth altogether. The idea, the truth that cannot be stated, the truth that cannot be pinned down. And then that is the kind of truth that is God. When we speak of God as the uh, reality that exceeds all thoughts, that surpasses all definitions, that is infinite, unbounded, eternal, immeasurable in terms of time. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about a gaseous vertebrate or a huge, uh, vast void without any wiggles in it. All gas. We put it 
another way altogether. The truth that cannot be pinned. I've sometimes speculated on the idea that all stars have been created out of planets. And that these planets developed high civilizations which eventually understood the secrets of nuclear energy and naturally blew themselves up. <laughs> and in the process, these stars flung out lumps of rock as they blew up, which eventually spun around them and became planets <laughs> all over again. And that this is the actual uh, method of genesis of the universe, uh, which would accord, of course, with the Hindu cosmology where it is, uh, where time and the events in time are invariably looked upon as a process of progressive deterioration through the cycles of each cowper in which things get worse and worse as time goes on until it can't stand itself anymore and it blows up and after a period of rest and recuperation begins all over again. Why do we somehow have a distaste for a theory of time which runs in that direction? I mean, would you rather have a rhythm that goes or the one that goes see, I mean, which is it? <laughs> Uh, or do you, you, you want one that's going up always? You see? Or always getting better. You, you, can't, uh, you can't even imagine such a state of affairs. Because, uh, you know, it's relative. As you succeed in life, you simply... Uh, well, there was a communist, um, a Russian, not a communist, a Russian philosopher who accused the communists in their various five-year plans and progressive notions, wherein people were always preparing for tomorrow, of converting all human beings into caryatids. Now, you know, a caryatid is a pillar shaped in a human form which supports uh, a roof. And he said, you are turning all men into caryatids to support a stage upon which others will dance. But of course, uh, you know they never will. You have one row of caryatids supporting a floor, and very soon your children are the next row of caryatids supporting another floor, uh, so that it gets higher and higher, and, but we don't really know where we began, and we're always in the same place, always hoping, always thinking that uh, the, the next time will be it. And this, of course, is an eternal illusion. It's much better. Actually, one would be much happier to think that there is, the future is simply uh, deteriorating. I can explain that very simply. Human beings uh, are largely engaged in wasting enormous amounts of psychic energy in attempting to do things that are quite impossible. You know, as the proverb says, you can't lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. But recently, I've heard a lot of references in just general reading and listening where people say, we've got to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And you can't. 
And you can struggle and tug and pull till you're blue in the face and nothing happens except that you exhausted yourself. All sensible people therefore begin in life with two fundamental presuppositions. You are not going to improve the world and you are not going to improve yourself. You are just what you are. And uh, once you have accepted that situation, you have an enormous amount of energy available to do things that can be done. And everybody else looking at you from an external point of view will say, my God, how much so-and-so has improved. <laughs> but I know, uh, I mean, Hundreds of my friends are at work on enterprises to improve themselves by one religion or another, one therapy or another, they, this system, that system, and I'm desperately trying to free people from this. And I suppose that makes me a messiah of some kind. But the thing is that you, you, uh, <laughs> you can't do it. For one very simple reason, uh, which I think most of you are by now familiar with, is that the part of you which is supposed to improve you is exactly the same as that part of you which needs to be improved. <laughs> In other words, there isn't any real distinction between bad me and good I, between the higher self which is spiritual and the lower self which is animal. It's all of a piece. You are this organism, this integrated, fascinating energy pattern. And uh, as Archimedes said, um, give me a fulcrum and I will move the earth. But there isn't one. It's like, you know, betting on the future of the human race. Uh, if I were really smart, I would lay a bet that the human race will destroy itself because in practical politics one realizes that nothing is going to work out right. No candidate I've ever voted for ever won the election. So, uh, but the trouble is there's nowhere to place the bet. And so, since I can't place the bed anywhere, I'm involved in the world and uh, must perforce uh, try to see that it doesn't blow itself to pieces. But the, the thing, I once had a terrible argument with Margaret Mead. She was holding forth one evening on the absolute horror of the atomic bomb and how everybody should immediately spring into action and abolish it. But she was so, uh, she was getting so uh, furious about it that I said to her, you know, you scare me because I think you're the kind of person who will push the button uh, in order to get rid of the other people who were going to push it first. <laughs> and she told me that I had no love for my future generations, uh, no responsibility for my children, and I was a phony Swami who believed in retreating from facts. But I maintain my position. Robert Oppenheimer, a little while before he died, said that it's perfectly obvious that the whole world is going to hell. The only possible chance that it might not is that we do not attempt to prevent it from doing so. Because, <laughs> you see, yeah, all the troubles going on in the, on in the world now 
are being supervised by people with very good intentions. Uh, their, their attempts to, to keep things in order, to clean things up, uh, to forbid this and prevent that possible uh, horrendous damage. And the more we try, you see, to put everything to rights, the more we make fantastic messes. And it gets worse. And maybe that's the way it's got to be. Maybe I shouldn't say anything at all about the folly of trying to put things to right. But simply on the principle of Blake, let the fool persist in his folly so that he will become wise.